This is the Clinical Takeaway podcast from HealthEd, where we interview leading medical experts on important topics that can positively change the way you practice. Here's your host, GP and medical educator, Dr. David Lim. HealthEd's face-to-face seminars are starting up again in 2022. And we hope that you will be able to join us for a day of high quality learning with a lineup of great speakers and important topics in women's and children's health. I'll be chairing a number of these events and I look forward to seeing you there. Register at healthed.com.au. Treating androgen deficiency appropriately will add enormous quality to our patients' lives and is highly rewarding for both the patient and the GP. Just as important as the correct diagnoses are discussions regarding cryopreservation of sperm in those found to have primary hypogonadism. Find out why it is crucial that GPs do not treat patients with primary hypogonadism with testosterone before referral. In this podcast, I will be speaking to Professor Robert McLaughlin. Uh, Professor McLaughlin, tell us about yourself. Well, I'm an endocrinologist by original training and then did uh, research and clinical practice in male reproductive health, fertility, mm-hmm. contraception. So I've, if you like, subspecialized in the area, which is called andrology, or the study of male reproductive health. And in that capacity, I have been the medical director of Healthy Male, which your audience might know as Andrology Australia, uh, as well as having an an interest in clinical practice and research, particularly in the area of fertility medicine. So I've been associated with the Monash program for 30 years in fertility practice, but more broadly in androgen physiology and uh, understanding of the use and misuse of testosterone. Today's topic is androgen deficiency in the younger males. Hmm. So Robert, just take us through how a GP ought to address this issue. Well, I guess it starts with uh, an index of suspicion and a recognition that the features of testosterone deficiency uh, can be easily spotted or can be quite subtle. And the symptoms and signs that you might read in a textbook by no means necessarily all be present. So uh, whilst it might be very obvious in a man with, uh, you know, poor body hair, small penis, poor musculature, small testes, you know, it, it's easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, in others, it, it could just be a, a constellation of symptoms that lead you to consider the possibility. And I guess the trickiest thing about the symptoms are, is they're nonspecific uh, often. And so you hear about tiredness, lethargy, depression, poor sex drive, poor sexual function, exhaustion, well, as you know, there are 101 different causes of those things. <laughs> so not everything that sounds like androgen deficiency is that. But you have to put it on the list because to miss it would be very uh, unfortunate. There's uh, so much to be gained by picking it up, finding out what the cause was, and it may require its own particular management. But also if testosterone replacement is needed, uh, it has such tremendous benefits and they last the whole lifetime. Uh, I, you know, it's true that androgen deficiency doesn't lead to premature death uh, in the sense that we know from uh, medieval times that uh, men who didn't have testes, 
for various mm. reasons. I won't go into that. Um, lived a long life, but it's a it's a poorer quality life. You know, they mm. the wind was always out of the sails. So the mm. Physical strength, the sexuality, all those things that we know to be part of being a male are missing, and that's really sad. And it's an absolute tr triumph when you pick it up, because you'll have a friend for life when a young man is found, uh, managed, treated and comes back to see you, and he will be very happy. Robert, I want to go back and just retouch the two points that you've made, because, you know, we, we all know Kleinfelters, and we, we can sort of be aware of it when we see it, but you're quite right with these non-specific symptoms, because immediately you're going to, you know, put long COVID, depression, and, and, yeah. and you can go down so many rabbit holes that you yeah. will miss uh, yeah. androgen deficiency. Yes, well, well, that's true. Let me just uh, touch on one of my favorite topics. That's Kleinfelder syndrome. Now, when Kleinfelder described that, he described a, a few men uh, in his original paper who have been imprinted on our medical brains ever since as being typical and representative of those folk. Okay. It's not true. <laughs> it's just oh, not true. No way. Uh, they are not all tall with severe learning disability and gynecomastia and poor virilization. They can be of normal height. They can appear quite well virilized. They can have good jobs. I've got PhDs, teachers, business owners with Kleinfelder syndrome. And it makes an incredibly important point. It's one in 550 live male births. So it's far and away the commonest chromosomal disorder in the male population. But less than half are diagnosed for their entire life. They are never picked up because they don't fall into your preconceived notion of being obvious and therefore easily picked up, you know, with childhood behavioral disturbances or some such thing as that, they're quite subtle. And now the commonest way to pick it up, uh, other than prenatal testing, which is a different, different topic, but is it infertility. They come along with their partners, 35 year old, you know, plumber, whatever, fully, fully out there in the world. And he's got a zero sperm count and you examine him and he's got testes, which are three mils, the size of the tip of your little finger, very small. And you say, oh, Brian, you know, your testes are quite small. And he says, oh, are they? And his partner says, oh, are they? Oh, mm. I wondered. Mm. Uh, and am I the first person to ever examine you? Yes, you are. So you get to the age of 35 in this society as a male, and you never, ever have a genital examination until it's provoked by something such as this. And yet 100% of those Kleinfelder's men, if you'd examined them, after puberty in 18, 19, 20, you would have found small testes. You would have picked it up instantly. It shows you how infrequently yes. men have a full physical examination because anybody would diagnose it instantly if they did that. So the point is that Kleinfelder's is not just one condition. It's a whole spectrum from the classic textbook to the very subtle. They all have infertility and the commonest presentation now is a zero sperm count. But having picked it up, there are things we can do for their fertility and we can also put them on testosterone longer term and make them feel better than they ever have before. One of the troubles about androgen deficiency is, is true for all causes. If you're used to it, if you've had it for years and years, you don't really necessarily notice it. You don't notice how tired, lethargic and, and uh, off your game you are until in retrospect, when you've been on it for six months and you come back to the doctor and say, ah, now I see what you mean. So you get habituated to something that's less than normal. How would you know <laughs> until in retrospect? So it's a particular plea, I guess, to 
to, for, for general practice to think uh, broadly about male reproductive health and find a reason or involve uh, a, a quick physical examination as part of a general routine health check. Because if you do that, you'll pick it up. So at that prevalence uh, of, in society, if you've got practice has got a, a few thousand, well, 2,000 males in it, you know you've got three or four Kleinfelders in your practice. And if you've diagnosed one of them, you've missed two or three. <laughs> so, <laughs> and that's typical. So that's a point I wanted to make clearly about Kleinfelders. It's a very, very important condition. I think you've made your point very loud and clear. And I am pretty guilty of the same uh, in, in the sense that men don't often come up for a full checkup. And when they do, I don't often at all feel their testicles. And I am guilty of that crime, Robert. Well, there are other things in, that they might complain about, you know, STI or, or, you know, foreskin problems or pain in the groin, or there's all sorts of reasons would take you to that. But en passant, when you're there, you examine the testes, you might find a tumour, which is, I mean, let's face it, is one in 200, mm -hmm. 200 chance of lifetime risk of having a testicular tumour. That's important. Mm -hmm. If they've had a history of undescended testes as a baby, and many men have, that's a major risk factor. They particularly need to have an examination and often an ultrasound to be sure. Mm -hmm. So there are reasons, there are entree cards, as well as just really being thorough that take you to that area. And then it's, it's literally only a couple of minutes and mm. the rewards can be substantial. So, uh, moving aside from Kleinfelters, there are many other reasons for men to have, young men to have androgen deficiency. They could be born with uh, congenital defects. And I don't know if you're aware of uh, Kalman syndrome or those syndromes where the pituitary gland has not developed its reproductive system adequately. And those uh, boys can present either in childhood, if it's severe, with a micropenis and no puberty. And it's, it's, it depends upon the severity and age uh, of the when you see them as to what you might see before you but in adults uh, of course men can lose their pituitary function from a, a, a pituitary tumor or a road accident or surgery or whatever trauma so that's the least common but there are plenty of other testicular diseases other than Kleinfelter's uh, genetic and acquired disorders uh, trauma uh, chemotherapy uh, cancer involvements uh, and often unexplained issues which will bring them forward and you know, it's probably one in every couple of hundred young men, you know, have got androgen deficiency. The challenge is to find them amongst the rest who have those non-specific uh, long COVID type symptoms that you, that you mentioned before and screening for that or being aware in your diagnostic approach to history and testing to pick them up. Being an endocrinologist, I think you've seen autoimmune disorders that affect many other of our endocrine systems. Yeah. Are testicles um, vulnerable to uh, autoimmune disease? Autoimmune orchitis, as you know, as an analogy to the thyroid or Hashimoto's, is not not seen. I mean, it doesn't seem to be a site. Remember, it's something special about the testes. It's an immune privilege site. It's got a, a system uh, within the tubules which separate the immune system from the sperm in its later development phase. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit of an odd immunological site, but uh, it's certainly prone to to damage and mumps or mumps or, mumps or chitis, that that's a, a classic cause which you and I might have thought would had gone away mm -hmm. but it hasn't gone away because uh, there are young men Australian men or born Australian born men who aren't immunized which is horrifying but in many of the our, our people who've come to Australia from other countries where they don't have a sophisticated immunization system 
uh, operating at, at the relevant time, they've had uh, orchitis, swollen testicles, and they have infertility and androgen deficiency. So, you know, it, it's not always the person before you may have had quite a, a challenge early life now with so many immigrant people coming from such a different setting of health background. You have to be very aware that the patient may have things that you thought didn't happen anymore, and mm. mumps orchitis is one of them. Yeah. Yes. And, and the fact they've had it doesn't mean it's been diagnosed, so they might not no. even be fully aware of it. No, no, they they may have a dim recollection of having a being yeah. in hospital or being lying in bed for a week with a swollen testes, but they won't have a sophisticated uh, understanding. And uh, many, I do see quite a number of adult men who've come from overseas who have got severe congenital pituitary problems, the Kalman's type people who have not been diagnosed. And when you see them at the age of 28 or 30, you know, they're grossly under-virilized, uh, small penis, very little body hair, and they've been testosterone deficient for their entire life and nobody's picked it up. And again, um, if they want to have children, that's possible with hormone replacement, with pituitary hormone replacement therapy. Uh, it takes, you know, I see a lot of these guys, takes a long time, takes a year or two, or three to, to get them through puberty, but you can often bring them back up by giving them hormone replacement therapy, but they come from an environment where they have escaped any diagnosis for the previous two or three decades. And, uh, and it's something we can offer is a, is a whole new level of medical attention, uh, which they haven't been had access to in the past. Tell us how SGPs we can progress from a suspicion to investigating and confirming right. the problem. Right. Yeah, okay. So a young 25-year-old comes in and he's complaining about issues uh, which could in some way be antigen-related. You've taken a history from him and focusing on things like previous trauma or surgery or infection or issues in his past reproductive health. We've done that. We examined mm -hmm. him and perhaps we do or don't find his testes to be obviously small or any abnormality, maybe yes or no. The mm -hmm. next test obviously is a testosterone. Now, the mm -hmm. point about testosterone is it's a circadian hormone. So it's something that you do in the morning. Uh, the reference ranges are cast between eight and 10 in the morning, a bit like cortisol. It's, it, you know, you do it in the morning and that's where the reference ranges are cast. And you do it along with an LH because doing a testosterone alone, and I get so many referrals from like doctors who have just done testosterone alone, is like sending somebody to a thyroid specialist with an FT4, but no TSH. Put your head in that space. How do I understand a testosterone of 10, you know, lower limit or eight, lower limit normal. If I don't have the LH or I don't have the TSH as it were for the FT4, they go together. And so that's, that would be my first investigation would be a testosterone and an LH. I usually do an FSH, which is the other uh, pituitary hormone that controls sperm production to get a, a view of the, of the whole testis. Uh, and often a prolactin, because whilst you're there, it's an important, the most important exclusion is a prolactinoma or a prolactin. So that's one blood test in the morning, and that's going to put you really in a position to make a call. Now, if those hormones come back completely mid-range normal, then it, it's something else. <laughs> it's not that. Uh, uh, on the other hand, if the LH is high and the testosterone is low, then you're looking at, and FSH is high too often, that's pointing to a testicular problem. And so maybe there is something in his testis. Maybe it wasn't as normal as you thought it might've been. And that's where the issue lies. And, and you do a confirmatory blood test uh, you know, three or four weeks later, again in the morning, 
And if you've got two testosterones, which are low with LHs that are high, that makes the diagnosis. It, it, that's what you've got. And uh, there are all sorts of other tests one might do, depending on the combination of those things. For example, if the LH is low and the testosterone is low and the prolactin is high, then that's a prolactinoma. And that requires a whole different you know, MRIs and all the rest of it. So you need to... Uh, understand the context i guess you know we could we could talk all day about the different sorts of things let me just touch on one thing that you need to have your antennae up about that's androgen abuse from young men you know the sort of body image physical performance type people the 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 red flags for that one are obviously on history you might wonder about the person before you they they may not have uh you know, uh, obvious symptom features of testosterone deficiency. In fact, they, they could look quite um, muscular, but um, they, they could feel tired and lethargic. Uh, and uh, when you do their hormones, you could find that testosterone is low and the LH is low. And you think, well, what's going on there? And this takes us into the area of uh, things not being in balance. Mm -hmm. uh, let me digress for a second. You know, with thyroxine and hyperthyroidism, Mm -hmm. is a period of time where you treat the overactive thyroid with cabimazole and the TSH stays low and then it comes up. There's a lag phase for the brain to say, oh, I see the problem's gone away. I, I can start to work again. It's the same with androgens. If a guy's been taking androgen use, uh, his brain will stop making LH. That's why it's low. If he then stops it, stops the, uh, the exogenous androgen, uh, what can happen is that it will dissipate the level of testosterone or androgen will, will fall away and he'll become symptomatically low mm -hmm. uh, but his brain hasn't yet recovered so mm -hmm. the lh hasn't come up yet it's a transient period of a few months where he's going to have a period of time where he looks like he's got a hypogonadotropic hypogonadism he could look like he's got a pituitary problem yeah because Things haven't yet come back. You understand what I'm saying? So yeah. you have you need to get a history from the guy. Now, I my experience with most of these guys is they're relatively straightforward. They tell you what they've been doing or using. Mm -hmm. uh, they usually see me because they realise it's a mistake and they're trying to get off it. Mm -hmm. And they're suffering in this period where they've stopped the the gear, mm -hmm. but the body hasn't recovered yet, and they feel really miserable. They could have a low sex drive. They feel terrible. And you say, listen, Brian, it will come back. Just, just hang in there, old son, and, and it'll come back eventually. I, I don't find that many people who hold their cards close to their chest and don't mm -hmm. tell me because you like to think that you have a good relationship, a non-judgmental relationship with people. You're just there to help them and say, you know, look, I can't understand your blood tests. It's, it looks a bit odd. It's almost like, you know, your pituitary's not working. Are you sure you're not taking anything? And that's, oh, well, actually, you know, mm -hmm. so it all comes out. So you getting a history from from these young guys providing they they trust you and you understand what you're trying to do for them they will usually tell you what's happening and you can reassure them that mm. when they stop their testosterone will come back eventually when the brain recovers that's such an important point let me see if i got it right you're saying that if ever we needed to do a blood test we actually have to do testosterone remembering that it it is a uh, bound to a circadian rhythm and that the time to take the test would be around 8 to 10 a.m. Yep. It's to be done together with an LH. Yep. 
And if you like to complete the whole lot of tests, do an SFH, FSH and a prolactin. Yep. If all are normal, we can forget about a uh, androgen issue here. What you're really looking for in our case is a high LH, high FSH, low testosterone. It's something in the testicles. Yep. But you can't do it on one reading. You've got to wait a few weeks and repeat it again yep, yep. before you confirm the diagnosis. Yes. The um, low LH, low FSH, high prolactin is a completely different issue. It's up yeah. in the head and repository. We're not going there. But what you've told us is be careful of the young males who are using androgens who may not yet have declared it, who may have come in for other issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that there is such a such a period you call a a lag period where the Mm -hmm. tests don't seem to make sense to gps Mm. (laughs) yes or to anybody uh yeah and very much like the the thyroid and the hypothyroid situation there's a period of disequilibrium where things aren't in balance oh another little red flag that you'll pick up is that androgens do a couple of things metabolically which you can see in your blood tests if somebody's taking uh, excess androgens their hemoglobin will be high Okay. or the hematocrit will be high because it's a very potent bone marrow, marrow stimulus. That's part of the reason that people, or athletes, abuse it because it lets them carry more oxygen. So uh, be aware. And that will, again, remit when the androgen levels go back to normal. It's just a temporary effect of the androgens. The other issue is SHBG. Now, people, many labs are very fond of doing calculated free testosterone, which is a mathematical calculation between testosterone and SHBG level. Uh, it's suppressed quite markedly by exogenous androgens. Mm-hmm. So you, you, you'll be, you'll, if you measure an SHBG in these guys, you'll be struck that it's low. And you know, oh, that's interesting. You know, low LH, low SHBG, mm-hmm. uh, and a low testosterone is a, is a, a red flag for well, two things. Now, this gets a little slightly more subtle. If they're on an on a androgen, which is not testosterone, nandrolone, stenozolol, one of those chemically modified ones mm-hmm. that doesn't cross-react in the testosterone assay. You won't pick it up. So you get a low testosterone. So you can have a guy who looks very virile, mm-hmm. very muscular, who's actually doesn't have any symptoms of androgen deficiency because in fact, he's flying on, on nandrolone. Okay. But his level will be zero of testosterone because it doesn't cross-react. So that, that's one explanation for the low T. Or it's the one I told you a minute ago, he's been on testosterone that he stopped it some weeks ago and it's all gone from his system and he hasn't yet recovered. So again, it would be helpful to know what he took. Uh, and if he took was taking stenozolol, it won't turn, turn up in a testosterone assay. So it, you know, you, it gets complicated and many, many, some, many GPs perhaps would, would involve an endocrinologist at this stage because there are certainly issues here which crop up like fertility practice and all sorts mm-hmm. of things happen at the same time. So it, but I think people should know about it because it is a tricky area uh, and it is a common area, uh, unfortunately, because these androgens, like other drugs of abuse, you know, cocaine or any other drain, people like being on them because it gives them a particular effect. Mm. Uh, and it's a, it's a health behavior, which we need to get them off, like, mm. like a drug of addiction. So you need to know about it. I'm glad you mentioned uh, the referral to endocrinologists because suddenly now things are looking a little bit more complex and the outcomes are a little bit harder for us to manage. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, what are your criteria for early referral and when should we refer when things get a bit t- uh, more complex? You're no doubt aware that the PBS access for publicly funded 
androgen requires the validation of the prescription, initial prescription by a GP, by a specialist, be the endocrinologist, urologist, or member of the uh, sexual health medicine or a pediatric endocrinologist. There, there, there is a requirement for it to be put before and, if you like, stamped. And after that's occurred, then the GP can continue to, to prescribe. So there's automatically a, 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 a requirement for validation through specialist referral if you're looking at a lifelong treatment through the PBS. Uh, and most people would expect back because you know, drugs like Oriandron are quite expensive to buy and the PBS makes them cheap. So uh, there, there's that aspect. Most people like to have, for example, the Kleinfelter's patient. If you pick one up, you're welcome to initiate the, the, the first injection, but they often want to see an endocrinologist around that time anyway. And a cautionary note here, which applies to Kleinfelter's and to any androgen deficient man, Testosterone should not be started if they're hoping to have a family in the foreseeable future. Okay. Right. So it's contraindicated. And the reasons, if you think about the physiology of contraception, of course. So if a guy comes to see you who's androgen deficient, small testes, lay down misere, primary testicular failure, but he's also wanting to have a start a family, you do not put him on testosterone then because you will, in fact, drop his sperm count to nothing because it will suppress LH and FSH. You must leave that, kick it down the road for a few mm -hmm. months until fertility is resolved. And similarly in the Kleinfelder's men, so you might be surprised that about 40% of those Kleinfelder's men can have healthy sperm recovered from an operation in their testicle and they have their own children normally now through IVF. So again, even Kleinfelder's patients, you wouldn't start testosterone until you'd clarify their fertility aspirations beforehand. And all those conversations usually involve a specialist uh, in the field of fertility medicine or endocrinology. So I think it's a fairly, it's a fair rule to say that, you know, most patients would be seen early, very early, if not initially before their first shot by an endocrinologist, simply to endorse the PBS pathway for continued prescription and to make sure no red lines are crossed, such as accidentally putting them on testosterone without having checked their fertility aspirations. And I've got to tell you, it makes my life a bit tricky when a patient comes to see me and well-meaning Dr. Johnson has started them on androgens six weeks earlier to help with the sperm, to boost their sperm. <laughs> no, it does not help. It's exactly the wrong thing to do. And I have to kind of back it out, you know, back the car, back up the driveway for that one. So be careful about that in the young male group. It's whom we're talking about tonight. Fertility aspiration is critical. That is such an important message. Thank you, Robert. I, uh, you, you couldn't make it clearer than that. The question, of course, is will the sperm count eventually start becoming a little bit better uh, over time? When? When you... So when you treat the Kleinfelters or the guys? No, no, no. Um, their sperm fertility prospects are going to be best than they ever will be before you put them on testosterone. If you were to put, treat a man with infertility with testosterone and then he changes his mind, finds a new girl and five years later he wants to have kids, sure, you know, you stop the testosterone then and six or nine months later, hopefully it will have got back to where it was before you started. So it will crank back up again, but the testosterone will not boost it. It will not help. It'll at best get you back to where you started. 50 years ago, there was a, a vogue for testosterone rebound therapy, where you put them on for a period of time, stop them and, and get better. 
that was completely fallacious. It doesn't do that. <laughs> All right. What, what's the story behind a young man, not sure if they want to have a family, uh, asking for testosterone therapy soon, and you're thinking, look, I'm not sure. Is there any role for storing the sperm just yes, in case? definitely. If I saw a young you know, 25-year-old guy with uh, severe oligospermia and low testosterone and feeling miserable, and he didn't have a partner and had no aspirations, <laughs> I would definitely store sperm because with microinjection IVF, you only need a few and those sperm could be quite functional. I don't want to get too far in infertility practice at the moment because there are some other little, little issues hidden away in there with you know why his sperm count is low and some other genetic tests that we need to do before we would use it. But suffice to say, it's better to store some sperm now, kick that can down the road. And when they come to want to use it in five or 10 years, there might be some issues to check in, uh, in him and in his genetics to make sure that it's okay to use those sperm. But in the short term, cryopreservation is a great thing. And of course, cryopreservation for sperm before cancer treatment or surgery or any number of conditions is absolutely mandatory. Uh, you really must offer, if you're going to do something certainly permanent or at least very damaging to sperm production, like putting them on testosterone, you yeah. have to have the conversation and store beforehand much easier for the patient and his partner down the track than trying to, to, to back out of it five or 10 years later. I'm hearing that this conversation should be had pretty much af shortly after or at the time of confirming the diagnosis. Yes, correct. And, and, and that's probably when we you know, refer the patient on to an endocrinologist at the same time. Mm. This is a highly interesting case, isn't it? Um, you know, because this is affecting a reasonably large population of young, healthy men, either because of endogenous issues or exogenous issues. Yeah, yes, it, it is. I think society is catching up with the fact that, you know, reproductive health problems in young men is a major community burden, certainly from infertility practice point of view. Men are the sole or, or contributory factor in half of the use of IVF in Australia. So, you know, there's, they make a, it has a big impact on the patient, the family and the, the health budget. And part of that equation is also the testosterone deficiency that you want uh, guys to feel as well and energetic as they possibly can to be productive and happy members of society. And there's, it does cause me grief to think that around Australia, the, my back of the envelope is that there's five to 10,000 Kleinfelders guys out there that are not diagnosed yet. And they won't be living the full life that we'd love them to do. Mm. And so it's it's an absolute treat when you have a chance to intervene and make such a positive difference to people. And um, this is, you know, these realizations are relatively recent. I mean, 30 years ago, when I got into this before some of the IVF techniques, all the Kleinfelder's couples would all have donor sperm and that was that and the way they went. Nowadays, uh, you know, they can potentially, uh, maybe half, have their own genetic children who are interestingly normal on the whole. The sperm they make has a normal chromosome complement, which is a whole different talk. And so they come to see you with their own genetic children and they've been on testosterone for the last few years since the, that child was born and they're feeling better and yeah. stronger and looking better than they ever have. And they bounce in to show you the children. I mean, that's, that's a good day at the office when you see that. I can see the joy in, already in their faces. Mm. Look, I need two other questions for you, Robert. One yeah. is uh, some of the resources for patients and GPs. And to finish with, 
maybe your key messages for our listeners? Well, there are certainly resources from the Healthy Mail uh, website, healthymail.org.au has got a lot for professional uh, people, uh, clinical practice guidelines, information sheets, the formulations in which testosterone comes. Obviously, it comes as, as, as transdermal systems, uh, gels and a scrotal cream, which is a relatively recent innovation, as well as the long-acting shots. It's all there uh, for you to have on file, which is, which is great. Uh, my message is uh, that to always be alert to the possibility of a reproductive health issue underlying symptoms which could be specific or very non-specific that a, a basic history examination will take you a long way along along the path don't be bashful about doing some basic investigations uh, endocrine investigations and the, the chance of fertility of semen test for the patients because uh, that will put them in the picture and allow you to refer them if required for further investigation and treatment the outcome of which could be a, a very happy and, and grateful patient and I suspect that uh, we can sometimes have conversations about two things, uh, which is looking out for our young men who are using exogenous testosterone and having a conversation with them. Yes. yes. And also the possibility of storing sperm in a man who is not sure about when he wants to have a family. Yeah, and, and if he's got a reason to if you've got a reason to think his fertility could be in jeopardy by what you're going to do, be it a chemotherapy for Hodgkin's or be it long-term testosterone therapy for deficiency, I'm not advocating that the whole male population stores food. Yeah, yeah. Probably not Probably not enough liquid nitrogen in the country for that. <laughs> but but, uh, but certainly uh, strategically placed uh, cryopreservation is a wonderful thing, yeah. That was incredible learning from you, Robert. I really appreciate it, that. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.